Pixel Sit. Hello and welcome to Pixel Sift. Now, if this is your first time listening to the show, welcome. On Pixel Sift, we speak to the creative minds of video games, interactive media, and we find out their stories. What does it actually take to make some of those experiences that you love? And joining us to share their game, Mini Motorways, is Casey Lucas Quaid from New Zealand-based Dinosaur Polo Club. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for having me, guys. Uh, kia ora from Wellington. So, I mean... I have to say, I absolutely loved the first release from Dinosaur Polo Club in this similar vein, Mini Metro. So, super excited to have a chat about it. Uh, and it's, I guess you could say, maybe successor in the form of Mini Motorways. So, let's get into it. Hey there. If you're enjoying the show and you want to hear more, subscribe to Pixel Sift on Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, or listen on pixelsift.com.au. See you there. Now, Mini Motorways is the follow-up to that groundbreaking minimalist public transport planning game, Mini Metro. It came out on a number of different platforms before making its way to to mobile. But uh, Mini Motorways uh, has initially launched on the Apple Arcade and is making its way to Steam uh, on PC and Mac this week. And now, Casey, for people who haven't ever come across the game before, how would you describe what Mini Motorways is? So this is this is always kind of a tricky one because. Um we are masochists who love to make games that um, kind of uh, steal bits and pieces of a bunch of different genres without ever quite confining to one particular genre. So I would, uh, I've always said that Mini Motorways kind of exists uh, at the intersection of strategy, sim, and puzzler. Kind of, it's got elements of all three of those where uh, you're simulating the traffic flow in a city. But obviously, the strategy element is the fact that you have to keep traffic moving, despite the fact that there are many obstacles in your path. But the puzzler element comes in because you have uh, predetermined terrain like you had in Mini Metro, and then the random spawns as well. And then once a building spawns, it's kind of there, and you just sort of have to problem solve your way around it. So... Yeah, it's um, it's a game about drawing the roads between homes and destinations to kind of get your commuters to where they need to go. When we spoke to uh, Peter when Mini Metro, Peter Curry, when uh, Mini, Mini uh, Metro first came out, we famously New Zealand didn't have any subways, um, but obviously New Zealand's got roads. So what are sort of the elements that are included in this uh, that you can kind of draw on? Because uh, I know there were a lot of references to local sort of uh, environs in, in and levels in this actual uh, first game. Is that sort of replicated in this new game as well? Well, uh, it's actually kind of funny that you mentioned that because uh, – no, it was it wasn't uh, included solely as a dig, but the Auckland level uh, in Mini Metro was uh, was almost kind of inserted there slightly as a joke, just because the the, the joke is um, if you look at the order in which all of the cities in Mini Metro are displayed on the carousel, uh, they're actually not displayed in the order in which we added them to the game. They're displayed in the order in which uh, the metro systems opened, and the reason why Auckland is uh, all the way at the very end. Uh, is because we decided that its metro system wouldn't open until the year 2300 or so. Um, so that's that's about where we're at with infrastructure in New Zealand. And um, I feel qualified to razz on it a little bit because I actually worked for uh, NZTA, the uh, New Zealand Transport Association, before I worked in game dev. So um, yeah, it's, it's quite funny. <laughs> One of the things that was, I guess, special about Mini Metro was the, um, the complexity that could come from what on the surface looked like a pretty simple set of tools and definitely a, a simple and clean aesthetic. What was it about that same kind of 
possibility space that made the team want to return to those kind of similar mechanics and that similar sort of design and expand on it um, in what we see in mini motorways? I think part of it is just the fact that um, our art team loves kind of nailing the the gradient between stylized abstract and realistic representation and um, they just love playing around with that and especially with the the various different uh bright color palettes that you see in the game as well that's just sort of the stuff that our art team loves to tinker with and um for the design team they've always considered that uh, it would be fun to kind of expand on the idea of mini metro but with kind of a few extra layers of complexity because of course uh with mini metro it's a it's a staggeringly complex game compared to what it looks like on the surface but you do have the one uh the one aspect that kind of keeps it from getting as complex as many motorways is just the fact that all the cars are running on lines and there's only so much as far as like complex pathfinding and sheer um can, can i cuss on here you guys are australians i'm assuming i can cuss Go ahead. <laughs> right just that that kind of sheer like what the f- just happened factor um isn't quite as possible in many metro simply because when things are on lines you can predict where they're going to go. And so the level of procedural generation in mini motorways is just kind of that extra level up where things can get a little bit more unpredictable. Your houses kind of sort of tend to stay in neighborhoods and then they don't. And uh, we were just excited to kind of uh, take a very similar concept and execute it in a way that would uh, allow it to be a little bit more complex and a little bit more unpredictable. What are some of the lessons that have been learnt uh, in that time? Because uh, I know that Mini Metro was really iterative. It sort of sent like it had lots of updates and kind of expanded as it went along. Coming into a, a sort of spiritual successor or a sequel, uh, lessons that have been applied to the development of this game. Oh, that's an excellent question. Well, um, as as far as uh, iteration goes, the very very early prototypes for uh, Mini Motorways before we settled on uh, the early early prototype of what became the finished game. Uh, our programmer and designer, Tana Tanoi, actually covers this in a talk that he did for GCAP um, in greater detail. But the long and short of it is there were actually 20 prototypes before we got to what kind of looks like the game you see before you. We tried hex grids, we tried no grid, and then eventually we settled on both an aesthetic and a game feel kind of more uh, inspired by map apps than games. So we are wanting to take some familiar, intuitive game design uh, that people would be able to just flick it open and be like, oh, okay, this kind of looks like when I look up directions on my phone. And um, that sort of, once we nailed that down, that sort of informed the rest of the iterative journey. And as far as um, kind of how things have progressed from there, it's it's, it's interesting to think about because we've done a lot with many motorways uh, between its launch in uh, 2019 on Apple Arcade and now uh, compared to the the same amount of uh, time that passed on Mini Metro, but um, we're, we're definitely we're definitely learning. I think to just uh, move a little bit quicker and uh, make up our minds <laughs> a little bit quicker, which is uh, which is a big one. There's a uh, there's a lot of just like quick cross department collaboration, a lot of rapid fire decision making, and um, we actually implemented a uh, dedicated beta testing program in the last, let's see, 14 months or so while developing the Steam version that has helped guide our processes a lot just because we can get quick instant player feedback. So it's interesting that you mentioned before um, the sort of part of what makes playing mini motorways start to sort of make the player sweat is that random sort of 
uh, building out uh, of, of a city that they can't really account for. And in a sense, that's almost, you know, replicating the experience of what I, I'm sure a lot of civil engineers maybe uh, think about and have to deal with on a daily basis. It's almost like, you know, what they study for is to uh, sort of knit together uh, groups of people that are building in ways that they can't always account for. Um, was that a direct inspiration that sort of the, you know, the development team saw in the world or, uh, or was that just something that kind of came, came out from, you know, needing to provide some kind of, you know, pressure on the player? No, that was definitely completely intentional. It's basically attempting to replicate the challenges that real world city planners face when they are attempting to make, let's say, an arterial route from A to B, but they have to plan around geography, they have to plan around existing structures, they have to plan around historic zones, they have to plan around, um, at least in New Zealand, a lot of seismic instability and uh, we haven't quite gotten to the you know part of many motorways where earthquakes will randomly destroy your maps. But um, you know we we wanted it to be more fun than punishing. So. Do you think you're just going to end up making Sim City 2000, or is that just kind of <laughs> with uh, earthquakes and natural disasters? Or I mean, like part of me says that would be really fun, and I know <laughs> that um, the art team has uh, had a had a good laugh trying to implement some uh, just some mockups of what it would look like with little you know disasters and hazards and things. But um, it kind of remains to be seen whether or not that will be something that we could implement in this game, or it might perhaps be something better saved for a, a future game, or possibly even a separate game mode. Because uh, like with Mini Metro, we plan to implement uh, a bunch of different game modes over the next few years with Mini Motorways as well. You mentioned that you actually did work in uh, transport, uh, and also talking about all that. How, how are the, where are the parallels between this game um, and what, what your experiences in working in that field? Uh, well, the, the, the funniest thing about that is that uh, the, the number one part of my job, there's actually no parallel uh, parallels at all because I gave driving tests. And uh, the one thing about the drivers in many motorways is that they all just obey the rules of the road all the time. And <laughs> it, uh, it would have been a little bit too complex for a game that size to, uh, to program uh, asshole driver behavior into the heuristic, I think. But... Um, Apart from that, I think the the big thing that really helped me with having that in my job history is just looking at maps all the time, like looking at city maps, planning out routes that you're going to be uh, suggesting local taxi drivers do to do their like area knowledge and street name certificates and um, looking at maps of the local hazards. Like I remember uh, my second or third year at NZTA, um, we had a volcanic eruption that caused some road closures and stuff. And I just remember looking at the little kind of real-time traffic map and thinking like, <laughs> um, The game has been out uh, on iOS devices for a while. Uh, I want to know a little bit about what is it like supporting a player base like that versus uh, thinking about supporting a player base on PC and Mac on Steam? Um, as far as the difference between the two uh, types of players, there isn't really as many as you might think, because the types of people who are going to be coming online and joining an online community for a game are already very similar sorts of players, kind of if you're getting to that point. Our game does have a big audience in what I think of as like the kind of non-traditional gamer demographics, you know, people who um, don't spend a whole lot of time hanging out on Reddit posting about games, people who definitely don't tweet about their Let's Plays, you know, it's a, it's a nice kind of all-ages experience, but... Um, I think the most interesting uh, thing to think about uh, in terms of community when it comes to mobile versus PC is that um, 
with mobile, and I've run into this with Mini Metro as well, there is a lot more uh, people who download the game that can't get it to work. They're not the sort of person who is used to digging around in their computer trying to troubleshoot their own reasons why their games don't work. And when you communicate with them, they might not even know the terminology to explain what is happening because they might be someone who um, got an iPhone from their granddaughter and this just happened to be the second game that they clicked on. And so um, it's 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 definitely a game where you execute a lot of kind of uh, non-traditional gamer communication and it's there's just a lot more talking to people like they're people, which is, which is actually quite cool. Have you got a good example of, of one of the weirder support requests that you had and you were able to help someone with? Oh, that's an excellent question. Um, we've, we've gotten some really funky bugs over the years, um, but I actually think the the funniest support requests that I get are I, I periodically get the audio is not working, and I just have to end up teaching people how to unpair their Bluetooth headphones from their phone or something like that. Because they've taken off their headphones, left them in the other room, wandered in, and they're trying to play a game, and they're like, "Man, I don't, I don't get it. No, no sounds coming out." And um, yeah, I've, we've all done that. So it's interesting that you mentioned before about how I guess um, there's a similarity between uh, the design behind Metro motorways and things like Google Maps or Apple Maps and stuff like that. And and that does remind me about you know when people are first interacting with a smartphone or a tablet. You know, they've got their kind of pre-installed suite of apps that they interact with, and they're probably going to use Apple Maps or Google Maps to, you know, look up a store or something like that. And I guess it does just remind me that, like, when your game can be so closely, I guess, visually linked to something that they have experienced before, it's almost like a lot of that language is already there, which is maybe key to what makes it uh, what makes it appealing. I have a fun tidbit I can add about that, uh, just because this is something we don't get asked about a lot, and I can kind of segue that into into what you said. Segue away. Um, so can either of you guess what our other big visual inspiration was apart from map apps with this game? I'm trying to look at my background at yeah. the moment. I'm trying to have a look at <laughs> yeah, the, the top way. there. Move out of the way. Uh, um, it looks like Monopoly to me. Oh, that's actually a really good guess. I hadn't thought about that, but uh, I can definitely see kind of where, where you might get that with the, the little hotels, yeah. Yeah, I was going to go with, uh, I don't know, I just immediately thought of like a brainstorm like chart or something like with- Oh, like, like neurons or something? and neurons going everywhere yeah. and stuff like that. No, 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 it's probably not the answer, but yeah, shoot, what is- Still, still a cool idea. Um, no, it, it was actually novelty theme park maps. You know, like when you go to Disneyland and you have that really flat rendered map with all the like extremely stylized outlines of the destinations. And it's like, ah, oh, here's where you go to Discovery Land or actually God, Discovery Land hasn't been a part of Disneyland for like 60 years. But you, you know what I mean? <laughs> sure. Why not? We're speaking no. to a particular crowd with that, with that reference, but that's fine. <laughs> um, that's really interesting sort of like borrowing that sort of design language there. And I'm just wondering, is like, has there been any bits where you, the game has been made maybe perhaps too stylized and then in that sort of beta testing process, you've realized that maybe you've gone a little bit too far in a direction that people don't have the language to understand uh, what you're trying to communicate? Definitely in the early stages of the tutorial, we got a lot of, um, there were pretty, pretty much three distinct groups of people. There were people who thought the tutorial wasn't intuitive, but they just kind of dragged their finger around on the screen and figured it out and were able to pick it up. Uh, people who were able to intuit it instantly and people who were just like, 
guys, this tells me nothing. I need more information here. I need uh, at least a few pop-ups telling me what all this stuff uh, is called. And so one of the things that we did while preparing for the Steam release was a complete overhaul of the tutorial uh, with some help from our new beta testers, as well as a whole bunch of uh, local testers who we actually had uh, come into the office and tinker around with it. We tried to get people who were sort of outside the the core gamer audience, and I think that ended up helping a lot. Because um, one thing that you have to be uh, kind of cognizant of when you're designing a tutorial is that if you are recruiting your testers from the sorts of people who are likely to apply to test video games, they already have a pre-existing level of knowledge that's higher than the average consumer. And so you have to kind of go out of your way to find people who might not have that uh, foundation of knowledge to make sure that you're catering to the uh, broadest possible group and the broadest possible uh, level of understanding. And where do you find those people? Uh, all over the place, man. <laughs> Like, uh, yeah, some, walking down uh, the street. Some, hey, play this for a second. Well, it's just sort of like, hey, does anyone have like a mom that doesn't play many games who like isn't doing anything on Saturday? Or, um, I had a few, uh, so in, in my, I don't want to say my other job cause it's not really a job, but in my, in my other life, uh, I'm a science fiction and fantasy author. And um, I invited a few authors from my writing group who I knew weren't particularly big gamers. Uh, yeah, to just come, come have a hoon. And what did they think about it? What sort of things did they bring to the table that maybe you'd overlooked? Because, uh, you know, the nor- as you said, normally the people who would be providing feedback are people who play games all the time and are in that sort of space. Uh, one of the big ones was actually people wanting more uh, responsive feedback when you do things on the touchscreen. So um, we had kind of originally erred on the side of caution when it came to too much touchscreen feedback because people who use their phones all the time get annoyed when every little thing you do on your phone makes it vibrate or make a noise or whatever. And so we were trying to kind of keep that stuff to a minimum for the people who would find it obnoxious. And then uh, some of our testers who uh, weren't, you know, phone power users were coming in saying like, I just, I just really want to feel when I'm doing stuff, you know? And so rather than adding more vibrations and more, uh, you know, stuff that could potentially become annoying, what we did was uh, our art lead Blake came up with a, dozens of prototypes to uh, actually change the way that roads animate when you draw them with the touchscreen. And uh, he eventually settled on this road drawing feedback system that's just um, it's just really joyful to use. It just makes you feel like you're actually doing something and picking up something and playing with it, even if all you're doing is dragging your finger around on a screen. It's, it's so impressive. And is that able to be replicated when you're using a keyboard and mouse, perhaps, or a mouse on your computer for the Steam and PC release? How does that sort of work? Oh, there are definitely some changes. We made it a lot less intense if you're using a mouse and keyboard, just because uh, I, I might actually be able to, to to find some some gifts for you and share them share them around before you post uh, the interview. But uh, the, the, there was basically a, a point where if you're dragging it around with a mouse at the the max settings, it just looked like the roads were flopping around like spaghetti, and that was yeah, <laughs> that was a bit much. Um, so yeah, we, we dialed it down a little bit for desktop, but yeah, it's still a really nice responsive feedback system and there's still um, just these like beautiful animations. Let's talk a little bit more about, I guess, the bringing the game to Steam because obviously it was that sort of real touchscreen uh, interactive base and also you had things like uh, Apple TV as well. What uh, does this particular computer, PC, Mac version have uh, more in common with? Is it the phone version or is it something that you would be playing on a, a big TV at home? 
Well, the interesting thing about that is that what we did, um, and this is very, very smart, uh, perhaps unintentionally, uh, intentionally, I don't know, but um, in order to publish on Apple Arcade, you actually have to have a decent amount of desktop suite features built in because Apple Arcade for Mac does exist. And so it wasn't quite as slick and as polished as our current Steam HUD setup and our current um, Steam uh, capacitive controller setup. But uh, the, basically, the, the the bones were already there, and we just—I was, I was going to say—we just we just gave them a, a new coat of paint. But you don't put paint on bones. I don't know where I was going with that metaphor. A neon skeleton or something. Uh, you know, we just we just polished polished the skeleton, polished and, the and bones. it looks great now. But um, I actually I actually think that the the. The, the thing that we had to keep in mind with the most when adapting for Steam is just the fact that you can do a little bit more on the back end with PC than you can uh, in a lot of iOS stuff. Like uh, one easy example is achievements. So on the App Store, you are limited to 100 total achievements, which sounds like a lot until you look at a game like Mini Metro that has 25 maps. And so then you have, I unlocked this map, I got a low score on this map, I got a high score on this map, and whoops, there's 75 of your achievements gone. So we were able to get a little bit more playful um, with the achievements on the Steam backend, um, which sounds like such a small uh, change, but you know, like play- players love those. I love those. Um, I had a great time brainstorming those. Um, there are some that are just absolutely disgusting, and I can't wait for players to play around with them. Well, I guess it's lucky in a sense that, uh, you know, you're maybe not making something like, I know it's completely unrelated, but like the Halo Master Chief collection, which I heard the other day has like 700 achievements or something like that. So, you know, which I guess they just really do accumulate over time. But I wanted to ask about um, developing a game, obviously not just for iPhones, iPads and PCs, but also releasing it onto a TV UI like Apple mm. TV, which I've never personally uh played around with i don't i don't own an apple tv but what kind of challenges does that present to uh to the developer uh the the biggest challenge uh that i personally faced was i i i cannot stress how humbling of an experience it was um to try to do qa for your own game when you're playing with a, a two button siri remote compared to like any sort of controller system that you are used to using it's very, uh, yeah, it's it's a powerfully humbling experience. But um, the, the other good thing about it is that uh, if you are testing and uh, developing a game for those big Apple TVs, is that uh, it's, a, it's a very motivating factor to make sure that you are creating a game with really crisp anti-aliasing, visuals that look absolutely gorgeous on a huge TV. Uh, our programmer, Joseph, puts so much extra work into some of our shaders and some of the motorway shadows and just the layering of the visuals, uh, especially in some of our new maps. And um, it's it's one of those things that just really shows off how gorgeous a game can get. Is there like a uh, uh, like an idle mode uh, in mini motorways at all? Because I would uh, definitely, if if given the chance, just chuck it on and just watch something kind of like you know proc jan across the TV screen. It's it's got that kind of um, I, I I think that the the technical term for it is uh, and I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong uh, Wussel factor, which is uh, ant farminess. And it does mm. just have that kind of like simant vibe. I use that for you know? everything now. I'm yeah, say that about it's everything. a great. It's a great word. Uh, basically, if if there is a word in English that is lacking, the Germans will have it covered. Yeah, 
But um, that is actually a game mode that we have looked at adding. Uh, not sure exactly when on the timeline, just because there's going to have to be some performance tweaks that get made. But we're definitely keen to have some sort of a um, an endless or a creative type mode just so the people can uh, build, build themselves some nice little roads and watch everything go. And um, in the meantime, we do have uh, a quite a, quite a cool feature that's coming out with the Steam launch, which is at any point during your gameplay, you can hit pause and then export a GIF of your game. So that's a nice little way to to kind of capture your little your little zoomy ant farm. And uh, it's 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 quite cool. I have to admit, uh, Tana, the programmer that worked on it, um, he added a little like actual zoom trail to the to the cars as they're driving around so that's not in the game but they have this sort of a almost like anime speed line effect which i just love i thought these were drivers that obeyed the speed uh, the, the the road rules though i don't know you're giving me mixed messages here i mean it could take place in an alternate timeline where the speed limit for everyone is like 120 k's some people live in that world already. <laughs> Speaking of German references there, just getting on the Autobahn as you're racing around in, in mini motorways. Um, Casey, I'd like to ask a little bit about uh, your experience as being a community manager in this particular space and sort of the frameworks that you use, because um, we have a lot of developers who listen to our show, um, to, to build it so that people can, um, you know, one, set up the good rules for your community, um, but also make sure that you can handle it um, when it uh, gets uh, to a scale that is uh, bigger than just one person. Yeah, definitely. And we are uh, just just about reaching that point. Uh, we recently brought on a second member of our community team, which I am very, very grateful for. And uh, she's amazing. Shout out to Ruby. Thank you very much for existing. Um, but I have been a moderator slash administrator type in online community spaces uh, for, for a very, very long time. I'm, I'm one of those kind of cusp uh, Gen X millennials. So I've I've been way too online for way too long. And uh, since since the early days of IRC, I have had pretty pretty solid rules for what I consider to be a, a good community, whether it's for a hobby or something you're doing professionally. And the the number one guideline that I always start with is that communities always reflect uh, the values and the attitude and the contributions of the people who are in them. So basically, if the most prominent members of your community are joyful and enthusiastic and conscientious, then uh, you won't really have to worry because cultures tend to follow who the primary actors uh, in any group of people are. And um, likewise, if you let things degrade, it will be very, very hard to clean up because communities tend to reflect what the loudest voices in the communities say. It's... um. It reminds me a lot of that anecdote that you hear people say um, about about the skinhead bar. Have you guys heard that one about how basically, um, you know, the, the guy's drinking in a bar and one skinhead comes in and he watches the bartender um, throw the skinhead out immediately. And he says, oh, what are you doing? He was he was just sitting in here drinking. He wasn't doing anything. And the bartender says, yeah, but if I let that guy come in here and hang out for one day and don't do anything my bar is a skinhead bar. Basically, you you set the standards and you just have to react strongly if people push back against them. But um, we, we've been very, very lucky with Dinosaur Polo Club. Um, the, the attitude that we have cultivated and the types of players that we tend to attract really really don't cause a whole lot of problems like that. It's a, it's a very... Um, it's a, it's a weirdly wholesome gaming experience compared to my last job, which, uh, for the record, was doing uh, player support and narrative on a PvP MMO. So, 
very different uh, crowd. If you change a dot point in those sort of things, uh, in some of the values, people get uh, upset about that. I imagine that would be uh, quite a challenge to to deal mm. with. Um, what would you do, uh, given a hypothetical situation where you had someone come in and saying, I hate roads and blah, 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 and the way you're handling it is just ridiculous. What would you do to, to handle that uh, situation? What was the sort of the, 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 f- the ground rules or the, the formula that you'd use to handle a, a bad actor? I mean, if, if someone came in and said, uh, I hate roads, we would just be like, bro, same, we're train guys. But um, in a in a less, in a in a more, uh, you know, vitriolic uh, context where someone was saying something, uh, you know, that, that was more, you know, actually damaging. Uh, I'm just, I'm really firm with people like that. I have no issue with speaking my mind. And, um, you know, we, we try very, very hard in our community spaces to... Uh, to let people know that as long as they are excited to be there and as long as they are positive and enthusiastic, we almost never like moderate people. But in the event that someone comes in and says something, for example, uh, that could be taken as hate speech against any group of people, um, I think it's really important to immediately and firmly stand up to that because there are going to be members of those groups who are members of your community. And it's really important for you to vocally and vis- uh, visibly stand up for them just because otherwise they will know that your community is not a place where they can feel safe. Speaking of hating roads, um, <laughs> I did have a question uh, that you've already maybe given me the answer to, but if you had to completely remove all traces of them on earth, which would you remove, roads or railways? Oh, yeah. I'd r- bye, roads. Bye. Goodbye, roads. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like when when you think about it, there there is a there is a certain I'd hesitate to call it political, but there is definitely a certain artist statement that can be inferred from a game where there are no enemies per se, but the uh, man versus environment uh, environment that you are fighting against is endless growth in restricted geography and the traffic caused by out-of-control growth that is not mitigated by any factors, and uh, evidence that if your city subsists solely on single-occupancy vehicles, you are doomed to fail and will literally always get a game over. Yeah, I guess that's a, a, a difference that I see, you know, in Mini Metro is, like, that game feels more like just sort of problem-solving in an almost endless possibility space you've got the white field there's 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 not a lot that you're actually kind of interacting with outside of you know your your lines and and the people on those on those lines whereas in the case of mini motorways yeah it's interesting that you talk about there being some kind of maybe political angle to be inferred about the nature of what it means to to endlessly build out uh and when you add in that degree of kind of uncontrolled growth that someone who designs roads isn't in control of either does kind of speak to a degree of it's like maybe an unhealthy relationship there. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I think it's uh, I'm I'm always quite tickled when I get these emails because uh, on our player support email and uh, our suggestions inbox, very very frequently we get uh, messages from players that are like, "Hey, so I'm really having trouble getting past uh, X score because you know it's just it's just not efficient to have all these cars driving around, and no matter how how good I do." I can't ever seem to get past a certain uh, degree. Haven't you ever thought about adding things like buses or trains? And it's just like, yeah, wouldn't 
every city be better if Maybe it had a few of those? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe think about that for a bit. <laughs> I mean, was that a possibility that was ever entertained by the team? Because obviously a city is made up of multiple different parts, right? Could there be mm. a, a rail layer that sits underneath of the mini uh, motorways as well? Yeah, that's definitely something we have considered. And uh, in some of the early mock-ups, uh, and again, if anyone is curious, you can look up Tana Tanoi's uh, GCAP talk from last year, uh, the Bumpy Road to Success, I believe it was called, uh, Building Mini Motorways. Some of our early prototypes, which you can see in there, actually had things like uh, ferries going up and down the waterways, carrying passengers. And then the other obstacle would be that like, when a boat is coming through, uh, your bridge opens up and cars can't drive over the bridge. So it's definitely like an extra layer of uh, complexity. And um, I'm not going to say that we've totally ruled it out, but um, at the moment, we're definitely keeping the, uh, the cars and the roads as the game's core function. And is that just with simplicity in mind? That and I mean, it's it's kind of one of those things where I think if you wanted to have a game that had many different modes of transport like that, um, it would be a better game if you designed it with all of those from the ground up rather than kind of uh, sanding off the edges and trying to squeeze them into the jigsaw puzzle a bit later. Well, it's a lot of fun. And uh, by the time you are listening to this, you will be able to pick it up on Steam uh, Mini uh, Met- oh, Mini Metro. Uh, well, sorry. Mini Motorways uh, is available now uh, on Steam. You can also pick it up on Apple Arcade because I, I've seen that you know a lot of the changes that have come uh, to the Steam version will eventually be making their way back to Apple Arcade. Is that correct? Oh, they're, they're sim shipping. The big update is dropping on Apple Arcade the exact same time that the Steam update does. We try very hard to maintain feature parity between all of our platforms on all of our games. It's, it's important to us. Casey lucas Quaid, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for spending some time uh, behind the wheel uh, and telling us a little bit more about uh, Mini Motorways. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, guys. I had a blast. Now, Pixel Sift is produced by Fiona Bartholomeus, Nicholas Kennedy. Thank you, Nick. Uh, Daniel Ang, Sarah Island, Viv Thumb, and Adam Christou. Uh, Mitch Lowe is our senior producer, and I'm Gianni Di Giovanni. I'm the executive producer. As always, we'll be putting links to everything we've talked about in the show notes of this, so you can head to our website, which is pixelsift.com.au, or in your podcast player. If you listen to it right now, you'll see links to where you can find the games that we talk about there. And you can give us a follow as well on Twitter, on Facebook or Instagram. Just search for Pixel Sift. Uh, that's Pixel Sift on all the social medias. And you can also come and join us on Discord. We'd love to have you over there as well. Um, that's pixelsift.com.au slash Discord where you can share your creative work, you know, talk about topics and games and anything else, talk about how much fun you're having with mini motorways. Uh, pixelsift.com.au slash Discord. And please... Share this show. Uh, It's the number one free thing you can do to support us. So, you know, word of mouth is really important to indie podcasts like this. So please do let your friends know um, if you reckon they'll enjoy it. And I promise you that they will. Um, So send them a link, uh, make it easy for them to take part in the show and we'll love you forever. That's all for this week. Uh, Thank you for joining us. And until next time, have fun.